And uh, when you go out in the foyer this morning, um, I purchased the tote bags I intended to purchase at Christmas time when I gave you the ones that are too little to carry your groceries. And it, but I would like to recoup the cost. And so $3 a piece. Now you can go to Safeway and get one for $2.99, but I think they charge you tax. <laughs> no tax. $3 a piece. If you buy four of them, I'll give you the fifth one free because that'll cover the cost because uh, they were $2.62 a piece. And I didn't want to have to deal with pennies. Or I didn't want to have Marcy deal with pennies. So we'll deal with dollar bills. So $3 will get you one. Um, and up to, if you buy four, we'll give you the fifth one free until they're all gone. And there's only 200. So uh, just in the way of, uh, of announcement. And... Uh, I just appreciate you taking to the grocery store or to Walmart or wherever you go shopping and advertise where you go to church. I'm assuming you're proud of where you go to church. There was an individual who attended here for quite a period of time uh, helping me outside. Didn't want anybody to see him. Uh, didn't want to know that he was hanging out with crazy people like us, but um, <laughs> my dad put on the sign years ago, and it's been there ever since, come as you are and you will be loved. Uh, it's our desire that when people consider that invitation, that somehow the message is projected that this is a place of grace, that we serve a God of grace, and that we are a people of grace. That we, because we've experienced God's grace, we are people who are going to extend grace to other people because we're saved by grace and grace alone. Grace and grace alone. And I have shared two messages in the past three weeks because I took one week off and Tony shared a message, but talking about our core values here at, at Faith Family the things that, that guide me and my thinking and, and what we preach and, and what we do in terms of activities and outreaches in the community. The gospel we preach here is the good news of grace. We are people of grace. We believe that no matter what you've done or where you've been, there is grace for you. God has grace. God's grace is greater than all our sin. And two people agree. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. In the first couple of messages talking about core values, we, we've, we've dealt with the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel is we're all sinners. And our sin separates us from God and Sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. And the really bad news is no one can make themselves alive on their own. But the good news is this, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christ died for us. In the uh, church liturgical calendar, I think originally created by the Catholic Church, we've entered into what is called the Lent season on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, a season of time that many believers use to reflect upon the incredible love and the grace of God and, and the price that Jesus paid that our sins might be forgiven and the judgment of God might be placed upon him instead of us. What Jesus did, what God did to adopt us into the family of God, all our sins can be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we talked about the intimacy with God, that we said this, this was the main theme of the message. God has a deep desire to be in intimate relationship with me. Last week, I put you at the end of it, but I want to make it more personal. God has a deep desire to be in intimate relationship, and I want you to write that word, me. This morning, I want to talk about what I believe is the proper response to God's amazing grace. When Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, he spent 11 chapters talking about the incredible grace of God. In fact, it's from that letter that we get that terminology, grace and grace alone. But when he gets down to the 12th chapter, he begins at verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I started to quote the King James, which is your reasonable act of worship, but it's it your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I believe that amazing grace leads to extravagant worship. Amazing grace leads to extravagant worship. Circle those words, amazing and extravagant. I use those adjectives on purpose. I want to remind us or inform us, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, that God's grace towards us is a very big deal. It's not something to be taken lightly, matter-of-factly. It's not something to be taken for granted. God's amazing grace is not the result of anything that we have done to earn it. God's amazing grace is not connected to what we have become, and, and we don't get any credit for what we've become. It's all by God's grace. It's his love, his mercy, his grace. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, Chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3, he's talking all about grace. And it's in that chapter 2 that he says, it's, you are saved by grace and grace alone, because lest no man would boast. You can't get me saved by works. 
And then, then he prays for the church there in Asia Minor. And I believe the prayer is for you and me too because God put it in his holy word. He starts out in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father. And for time's sake, getting down to verse 17, he's praying that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The NIV says that you may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. But he doesn't have to praise that. He makes this statement, no matter how much you know about how wide, how deep, how long, how high, you'll never know it all because it's unsearchable. The magnitude of God's love surpasses our ability to comprehend it. So when we say it is amazing grace, it really is. And when you begin to get a glimpse of that amazing grace, it leads to extravagant worship. Worship. Now, I know that we could spend, and I probably need to spend a few weeks preaching on the aspects of worship and what it's all about. Um, but for our time today, I just want to use one small definition. Worship, it's our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. That's important. It's our response to God for who he is and what he's done, expressed by what we say and the way we live. First word in that definition I want to focus on for a moment is our response. Our response. Would you all say that word with me? Response. Thank you for responding to my request. All of you responded one way or another. Kudos to those who did what I asked. To the rest of you, worship our response. If I were to suddenly break out in a dance up here, it would most likely evoke a response from you. And that would be in how well you think I did. You're already laughing at me. Most of you would probably moan and be embarrassed. Or you'd take out your cameras and put it on Facebook, what you saw. <laughs> Worship has to do with our response to God, who he is, and what he's done. Our response going through my files and I was reminded that 10 years ago, Vicki and I had the privilege of singing in, uh, with the Southwest Washington Symphony while the symphony was playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And the choir got to sing along in the last movement, the Ode to Joy. 
And uh, it was at the Rose Auditorium at LCC, about 500 people in attendance, packed house there. And, and at the conclusion of the performance, the audience responded by standing on their feet and applauding and applauding. At that particular time, Ryan Heller was the director of the symphony. And uh, that night was to be his swan song for, it was his last night directing. So when they started applauding, he had each of the four soloists who had sang the four solo parts throughout the symphony take a bow. And uh, then he uh, signaled to the choir and they clapped for the choir and then he signaled for the orchestra and then he took a bow and then he had the quartet bow again and, and they're still clapping and, and this time Ryan and the four soloists, they leave the stage but the people kept on clapping. And so uh, 10, I don't know, 20 seconds later, here comes the quartet of soloists and Ryan again, and he has them take a bow and they're still applauding. They go off the stage and they're still standing, they're still applauding. And a third time, the soloists come out with Ryan and they take another bow and, and everybody bows again and they're still applauding. Fourth and final time, Ryan came out just by himself. And uh, I don't know if the music was all that great. I know that we sang that Ode to Joy in German, and not everybody in that choir was real good at German, I'm sure. And I'm sure that most of the congregation or the audience had no clue what the German words were, although it's a song that's been, have lyrics of all kinds of lyrics, so they can be singing anything. But because Ryan's final performance, I think that's what brought on this great response. It wasn't a matter that the program said, when you get to the end, you keep applauding until the applause sign goes off. It was their response to that moment. Worship is a response to our God as we see him, as we understand him, as we experience him, and as we appreciate him. I left you a lot of words to fill in in one, so I'll repeat it three or four times. <laughs> Worship is a response to our God as we see him. We sing often, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. It's our response to him as we understand him. Paul said, I, want, I pray that you'd understand how wide, how long, how deep, how high his love is for you. As we experience him, Oh, thank God for those moments that we, we know, that we know, that we know that he has touched this human being and we feel his presence. And those times that we appreciate him when we're very cognizant of the fact God was in that moment. God was in that moment. And our response is, I want to worship him. I want to give him honor. Our definition we're using today, our response is personal and it's corporate. I worship God when it's just me and him, or him and me, proper English. 
and I worship him in the context of gathering together. I've often been asked, what is your favorite place to go? My favorite place to go is to church and to be with people, lifting our voices to God in worship and opening up his word and allowing him to speak to me. And I know that some people might think I'm weird, but that's okay. My favorite place to be is in the presence of God with the people of God. We respond to God, and I said it before, but I wanted you to write it down for who he is, for who he is. He's love. He's light. He's good. He's faithful. He's my shepherd. He's my fortress. He's my rock. He's my healer. And I could go on and on and on. But the greatest thing of all to me is he's my father. My heavenly father who loves me so much he took my place. He took my place. Which brings me to the second thing. I worship him for what he's done. I worship him for what he's done. He gave himself totally on my behalf, on your behalf. God left heaven and became a human to take the penalty for your sins and mine. He went into the grave and came back with the keys of hell and death in order to give us eternal life in a place called heaven and abundant life while we are here on earth. If that's all we know about God, it's more than enough to keep us in the place of responding to him for the rest of our life with extravagant worship. There is a direct relation to our appreciation of the grace of God and our expression of worship. A direct relation to our appreciation of the grace of God and our expression of worship. Extravagant worship is not a matter of whether or not you came from Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, or Lutheran background. It's not a matter of how many college degrees you may have. It's not a matter of whether you're a thinker or a feeler. It comes from the understanding of just how much grace God has poured into you and onto you and gives to you an ongoing day. And you begin to stand in awe and wonder of the grace of God. It's not in my notes, but as I'm standing here, the words of the psalmist, what is man that you aren't mindful of him? Who am I, Lord? that you're mindful of me, God's grace. So there's this direct correlation between my appreciation of the grace of God and my expression of worship. That's why the cross is at the center of so much of what we do here at Faith Family. Never do we want to forget the grace of God, how far he came, to bring us to himself. This morning, as I'm thinking about extravagant worship, I want to take your attention to the Gospel of Luke, where we read a story 
of an incident that, that happened with two different women at two different times in Jesus' ministry and in his life. But we're going to look at the one that's in Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We could read this, a very upstanding man in the community, a man who thought he had all of his stuff together really well, invited Jesus to dinner, a Pharisee. I've told you before that the Pharisees, they were Jewish men who took incredible pains to live by the law that had been given by Moses, then super refined by the rabbis over the centuries until they came up with 613 laws. Ten, they multiplied him by 60 plus. 613 laws that they endeavored to live by outwardly, outwardly. We don't know why this man invited Jesus to dinner at his house. Perhaps he was in agreement with Nicodemus, who was also part of the Sanhedrin, that this, this is a man sent from God, and he's, and he's curious, and he wants to know more about him. Perhaps it was just to look important in the community. After all, here's this traveling preacher, and the custom was somebody, people of means, would bring the traveling preachers in and wine and dine them. Or it could have been that he was one of those Pharisees that was looking for a way to trap Jesus in a theological conundrum and show that he was a false prophet. We don't know. But whatever, the Pharisee invites Jesus in, and Jesus accepts the invitation, and they are now reclining at the Pharisee's table, probably in the courtyard that's in the center of this house. And, and when, they, when they came to a meal, they didn't pull up a chair at the table. The table was low, and they would lay on pillows. And the custom was, sorry about your left-handed people, the custom was to lay on your left side, with, eat with your right hand, and your feet would be away from the table. Now, I've also read that in that day, if somebody had dignitaries at their house for lunch, that it was customary to leave the door open to their house so visitors could walk through and listen to conversation and and see, yeah, this guy's got dignitaries at his house. I don't know if that's how this lady got in or whether she conned somebody at the front door. But this lady comes in and says in verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. The NIV said, lived a sinful life. And behold, a woman. If you're reading this in the Greek, it would be alarms going off. Look, there's a woman coming into the meal where the men are seated. Behold, a woman of the city. It says, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flax of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this most likely was a very awkward moment for whoever else was at that table, and especially for the host. 
this woman who has a bad reputation in the city is on her knees at the feet of Jesus. And she has a response that probably superseded anything that she had planned in her mind before she came into that room. As she bows at his feet, she begins to weep. She probably didn't plan that part. And her tears began to fall on the dust-covered feet of Jesus. Can you see the picture? Suddenly, his feet are getting muddy. She didn't bring a towel. She didn't plan this. So she loosens her hair, lets it down, and takes her hair and begins to wipe the dirt from his feet using the moisture from her own tears. She's weeping. I want you to know how unacceptable this was in the eyes of the people watching. A woman in that culture was not to let her hair down except in the presence of her husband and that in the privacy of their own home. One of the authors that I read says that the Talmud says a woman could be divorced for letting her hair down in the presence of another man. There was another rabbi who taught so grave was the offense that they put it in the same category as a woman exposing her breast in public. The people watching this are in absolute shock. But she keeps wiping his feet with her hair until the dust is removed, the dirt is removed. And then she takes that alabaster jar opens it, breaks it, however she gets into it, and she pours some very expensive perfume on those feet. And it says she kissed his feet. And if you read the Greek language again and again and again, she kissed his feet. She was a self-forgetful mess, weeping unashamed, her hair now stringy with the mud and tears that she has wiped his feet. As I said before, most everybody is probably very uncomfortable. She has come in response to what she experienced when she heard Jesus speak someplace, somewhere. We don't know where it was. I don't know if she was there the day that he said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lonely. My burden is light. The tears, that was her response to being set free from the load of guilt that she carried. That was her response to being set free from the load of guilt that she carried. Among other things, she had broken the seventh commandment and everybody in town knew it. In that day and age, it was not 
as an acceptable behavior as it is today. The culture would have let her know on an ongoing basis she is a sinner. She is a sinner. But when she heard Jesus preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, she did. And now with tears of joy at the feet of Jesus, my chains are gone. I've been set free. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Her hair. Her hair. This was, in that culture, her womanly glory. According to their tradition, the woman, the long hair was her beauty, her glory. She loosed it and used it as a towel. Her beauty was devoted to the glory of Jesus. She didn't care. It wasn't the proper protocol. She was worshiping Jesus. What was Jesus' response to this blatant interruption? He gladly received it. He gladly received it. He lovingly accepted her act of worship as everyone else in the room watched in silence, some with disgust in their heart for this moment. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. About that time, Jesus decides to break the uncomfortable silence saying to Simon, I would like to comment on that. Simon says, I didn't say anything. Jesus said, yes, you did. You think I am not a prophet? Try this on for size. I'm going to tell you what you're thinking. You say it's not there? Well, that's the subtext, isn't it? We'll read verse 30 or 40. And Jesus answering him, remember he said to himself, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay. Right there is the gospel message. It didn't matter whether you owed 50 or 500 or 5 or 1. You could not pay. But he goes on to say, when he could not pay, he canceled the debt. That's the gospel. God canceled the debt because Jesus paid it all. Now, which of them will love him more? Don't you just love the way that Jesus turns every happening into a teaching moment? In the ongoing encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, they always came to him with loaded questions. 
And he always answered them with another question that only had one obvious answer. They always thought they could trap him. They never did. He always did. Simon, which one do you think is going to be the most grateful? Verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, I guess we can read this and say the most extravagant worshipers are the one who committed the most sins before grace was applied to their hearts. I remember when I was youth pastor here a long time ago, there was a couple of teenagers who thought they had to go do bad things so they had a good testimony. Um, that's not what this is saying. What Jesus is saying is that the person who sees and understands they have been forgiven a debt they could not pay, that's going to be the person who responds with the most affection and passion. There are some who believe that Jesus was referring specifically to this woman and to this man. She a 500 denarii sinner, him a 50 denarii sinner. The problem was the, the Pharisee did not see himself as a sinner at all. He did not grasp that he was separated from God by his sin. She, on the other hand, understood clearly her dependence upon the grace of God for salvation of her soul and the magnitude of the grace that she had received. She understood. I didn't do anything to earn this. I didn't try to keep 613 laws. I messed up in the Big Ten. But God said, there's a way for me to be forgiven. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. He was not a good host. In that culture, the first thing you did when a company came to your house was provide a basin of water to wash their feet. I mean, they walked where they went, dusty roads. I entered your house, you gave me no water, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. In that culture, they would greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. You go to that part of the world today, that's still the custom. You gave me no kiss. From the time she came in, she has not ceased to kiss, kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. That was another custom. But she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And catch this. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. Her sins were not forgiven because of her act of worship. Her sins were forgiven because of her faith in Jesus Christ that he could forgive her. And her act of worship was an expression of love for what he had done for her. It was expensive perfume. A pound of nard in that day would cost about a year's wages. Just contemplate that as what your year's wages is. Whether you be on Social Security or whatever you're on, your year's wages, taking it and pouring it on the feet of Jesus in worship. Because her sins were forgiven, she offered an expression of love to Jesus. She gave her very best possession. She did not give him leftovers. She gave him her very best possession. And she did it with a certain amount of reckless abandon. A woman dared to come into a meeting where the men were eating. She was a woman that had a bad reputation, a sinful one, it says. She dared to approach Jesus, who's a and she knelt at his feet, let her hair down in public, no less, used them as a towel to wipe his feet, kissed his feet, not concerned what anybody else was thinking or saying. I love this. She somehow understood she was welcome at the feet of Jesus. I love to sing the song we sang in the 1980s and 90s. I will come and bow down at your feet, Lord Jesus. In your presence is fullness of joy. There is nothing, there is no one who compares with you. That was her expression. Oh, that we would live in that mindset. It's my prayer that everyone comes part of this family knows that we are welcome at the feet of Jesus Christ. And that's a place where grace abounds. It's a place where we're free to express our love and devotion to Jesus Christ in extravagant acts of worship. She gave her best. Extravagant worship can be costly. Not because our worship is buying something, but because our worship is expressing our love and thanksgiving for the grace that we have received. I was going to talk about David and the day he said to a man, I'm not going to give something to God that didn't cost me something, but I'm not going to talk there about that. But he understood that worship needs to be costly. It needs to be come from my, come from the depths of my soul. Extravagant worship. So what does that mean to us today? What, what impact does amazing grace and extravagant worship have on us? It impacts the way we sing and pray when we gather in this room. It impacts the way we sing and we pray when we gather in this room. 
we began our time today by singing from Psalms 103. I was tempted to preach this part of the message before we sang it, but I didn't. The psalmist preaching to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. The American church has become very consumer-minded. And the tendency is to sit in a service and say, okay, worship team, move me with a song that I want to sing. The tendency is to look for a church that has a band that plays everything absolutely in tune and in sync and nothing ever goes wrong. Just like the CDs that you buy at the store. That's wonderful. But the, psalm, the psalmist understood this. Worship is not about somebody getting me into an emotional state. It's about me determining, I'm going to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the next verse says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. It impacts the way we sing and pray when we gather together as we follow the command of Psalms 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with a song of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We come ready to declare praise and honor and glory to God for all that he's done for us. The fact that we're breathing air today, the fact that we're able to move about today is because of his grace. We come like the sinner woman in Luke 7. We come like the leper that Jesus healed in Luke chapter 17. Don't have time to go to that story, but you remember as Jesus is going along and there's 10 lepers and they want to be healed. And he said, go show yourself to the priest because that's the way they got back into the culture. The priest had to declare anybody with a skin disease that they were clean. On the way, I don't know, fingers were restored. Sores suddenly healed. If you read about leprosy, you could become really gross looking. But a Samaritan on the way sees he's healed. And what did he do? He turned around and he comes back to Jesus and with a loud voice it says, shout to the Lord. A loud voice, he comes giving thanks because he caught a glimpse of the grace of God. Number two, amazing grace and Extravagant worship impacts our giving. When we begin to clearly understand the amazing grace that God not only saved us, but he empowers us to live each and every day, 
It impacts the way that we give of the resources that he's put in our hands to steward. In this fellowship, I'm proud to say we have a great number of people who have learned the biblical principle of giving the first 10% of what God has blessed you with in tithe. Statistically, in American church, only about people only give about 3% of their income. A whole bunch of you are way above that because you've learned the blessing of going way beyond that. You've learned that God's word is true, that when you manage his resources and acknowledge the fact they're his resources by giving tithe and offerings beyond that, that God will bless you in a powerful way. Tithing is an act of worship. Saying, you're my God. You're my provider. I am totally trusting in you. I am totally dependent upon you. What I have is because of your grace. I give as an act of worship. Number three, it impacts our serving. It impacts our serving. The amazing grace of God. And I began to extravagant work over the years and being in leadership. There have been occasions what I did, what I did, I've done what I've did today. I said we have a, a need as after the 11 o'clock service uh, of somebody to come and help. And sometimes that works. And sometimes it's me, myself, and I. I preach sermons about serving and the need that everybody to do your part. We all have a part in the body of Christ. We're all members of the family. And when you're in the family, sometimes you wash dishes even though that's not your ministry. You know, all of those kinds of things. But you know what I've discovered? When I talk about Jesus, I talk about the gospel, I talk about the amazing grace of God, and folks begin to comprehend the grace that God has imparted to them, they come and say, what can I do? I want to serve. I want to give back because God has given so much to me. They have the experience that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He fell on his knees, woe was me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel took the coal from off the altar and touched his lips and purged him. God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah stands and said, Lord, send me. Here's what I've discovered about people who've caught a glimpse of his amazing grace. They have this kind of attitude. No job is too small for me. And no act is too big for me. No job is too small for me and no act is too big for me. You need me here every Sunday morning? I'm there. Tuesday, whenever. You need me to mow the grass, pull the weeds? Absolutely. I want to live a life of extravagant worship, giving my best to he who gave his all for me. The way I sing and pray, the way I give, the way I serve. When we begin to understand the amazing grace, it impacts our speech. It impacts our speech. As an extravagant worshiper, it is my desire to do everything without complaining. Did you know that's in the Bible? In the imperative form? 
I think I put it on the screen. I think I forgot to put your notes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What does all things cover? All things, everything. I'm not quite perfect there yet, but I'm working on it. And I hope you are too. When we live in the awareness of God's incredible, amazing grace, when we're living in close relationship with the fathers, it, is, it will trickle down into our speech patterns. And more often than not, our response in life should be this. I am blessed and I am grateful. I am blessed and I am grateful. There are folks in this house who make that confession on a daily basis. I am blessed, I'm grateful. When you understand the amazing grace of God that saved you from hell, if you never have another good day on this planet, you can still say with total sincerity, I am blessed and I'm grateful. Sometimes we watch um, undercover boss and um, there's a one of the episodes it's been years ago but it left in a mark in my mind that has not gone away when the COO that's the uh, operating officer the chief operating officer of Orkin the pest control company he um, He's going to work on, I think he was in Louisiana that day, and uh, he's going by the name of, I think he went by the name of Bob. And the employee that he met, he's going to meet this employee at, at, at this client's house, and this employee has been serving this one house for 12 years. And there's some parts of the country, especially in the south, where they have cockroaches that you can make a dinner of. Um, that they come on an ongoing basis to take care of their, and we'll call him Charlie. I don't remember what his name was. But when Charlie knocked on the door and Mrs. Percy answered the door, Charlie greeted her cheerfully and she was happy to see him and she merely stepped aside as he entered the home as if he were just part of the family. And as he went about the room, uh, the, through that room checking for things, he's saying to Bob, his boss, he doesn't know it's his boss, but he's saying to him, uh, Mrs. Percy, she, she keeps a, a very clean house, and that's the number one defense against cockroaches and other unwanted house guests. He thinks he's educating his boss about pest control. Mrs. Percy says to Charlie, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. And then Mrs. Percy shares with Bob, Charlie's sick. But he didn't tell us about it at all. We had to pry it out of him. He has a hernia, and he has a form of leukemia. Charlie just kind of shrugged as she's talking. She said, when are you going to have that hernia fixed? When I get the leukemia taken care of, was his response. If you have watched the program, you know there's always a segment when the undercover boss interviews the employee during a break whether it's a lunch break or a coffee break. Bob begins to gently pry into Charlie's life and the situation a little deeper. And as Charlie's talking to Bob, he kept saying, I'm blessed. 
I'm blessed. He's got leukemia. He's got a physical problem. Causes him discomfort. But he kept saying, I'm blessed. Not woe is me. Life is not fair. He didn't complain about Oricon. I'm blessed. During the concluding moments of the show, the undercover boss reveals his identity to the people that he's been with during this week of undercover. And after he reveals himself to Charlie, he says, here's what I want to do for you. Barkin's going to pay for your surgery. You don't have to worry about that expense. Secondly, we're going to fund a trip for you and your family to any beach you want to go to. And on top of that, because you've been a faithful employee for 25 years, I want to give you a $30,000 bonus. Charlie kept saying, a blessing, a blessing. I am blessed. And the boss, I remember his name was Dan or Don. He said, my day with you was a highlight of my undercover trip because this man's speech had been impacted by the fact that he understood something of the grace of God. When's the last time you said to Jesus something like, Jesus, like this? Jesus, how is it that someone like me is a part of your church and your kingdom? Lord, no matter what this day holds, I am blessed and I am grateful. Would you stand with me as we sing? I will worship you. The proper response, and I'll lay my life before you. I will worship you, worship and adore you. I will worship you, lay my life before you. I bow my head before your glory, worship at your feet. I'll declare that you are worthy. Set my eyes on you alone. And I will lift my hands to you. I'm saying, Father, I love you. Father, I need you. I will lift my voice and sing. I will sing of your glory, the glory of my King. I will worship you, worship, you. 
worship and adore you. I will worship you. Lay my life before you. I'll bow my head before your glory. Worship at your feet. I'll declare that you are worthy. Shed my eyes on you alone. And I will lift my hands to you. I'm saying, Father, I love you. Father, I need you. I will lift my voice and sing. I will sing of your glory, the glory of my. I will lift my hands to you. Saying, Father, I love you. Father, I need you. I will lift my voice and sing. I will sing of your glory, the glory of my King. Father, we are so thankful for your amazing grace. Lord, as we conclude this hour together, my prayer is for those who need to embrace that amazing grace today. I thank you that it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the truth that we are sinners. Whether it be a 500 denarii sinner, a 50, dollar, 50 denarii sinner, or one denarii, we are all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God, in your great love, you sent your Son to die in my place. Thank you for the faith to embrace that, to believe that. And the grace that says, as you believe in me, I will forgive you of all of your sin and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. So those that are praying that prayer, whether they be in their home or standing in this room this morning, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the promise of your word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In that moment, we are made a new creature. Thank you, Father. And Lord, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you for a good time. Lord, that we would remember to be extravagant worshipers, to on a daily basis bring you our best, to give ourselves to you, to allow you to be the king of our heart, the Lord of our life. Because there's something that takes place when we come to your feet and say, Jesus, here I am. Send me. There's a manifestation, an outpouring of your presence and your spirit that causes us to be people who make a difference in the world that we live in. Lord, how desperate this nation is for people who make a difference who will be salt and be light. Lord, may we be those people as we give to you the glory and the honor that is due you on a daily basis. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Have a blessed day.